Welcome back to another episode of the Interchange Recharged. I'm your host, David Van Miller. On this special episode of The Interchange, we're hitting the rewind button and taking a look at some of my favorite interviews and moments on the podcast this year. It was a very eventful year in the world of energy, and I was lucky enough to sit down and talk to the people working smarter and harder to help us reach our net zero goals. We got to know the CEOs of clean tech companies around the world who are making a name for themselves on land, at sea, and in the air. We attended live conferences in San Diego and Phoenix, where we were able to sit face-to-face for the first time in a long time with key leaders and innovators across the energy sector. We discussed policies and early-stage investment helping to support the energy transition. It was a lot of fun, but let's refresh our memory, shall we? Earlier this year, I was joined by Carlos Araki, the CEO of Quay's Energy. According to Carlos, Quay seeks to unlock geothermal at the terawatt scale. I really enjoyed this episode because it highlighted the vast energy resource available via geothermal, and it also uses existing skills, technology, and infrastructure. Let's take a listen as Carlos gives us insight on the groundbreaking drilling technology they're using to further the development of these geothermal projects. The big idea behind the technology is, number one, let's not reinvent oil and gas drilling. That's pretty mature technology, right? So let's use that to get to the basement. That's important. We're going to come with a normal conventional drilling rig, and we're going to drill all the way to the basement. Once you're in the basement, we're going to switch to millimeter wave drilling, and millimeter wave drilling is going to give us a way to drill for miles in the basement at rates that will make it economically viable. There's a few things that go on in the basement that don't go on the subsurface, and that's why we can do millimeter wave drilling. So it's important to split that process into two steps because the physics are different, and it opens up a way to do millimeter wave drilling. Millimeter wave drilling, that's essentially lasers, correct? So lasers, it's it's a form of electromagnetic drilling like lasers are. Lasers uh, have a particular wavelength range. Uh, so, so we're talking about uh, a wavelength in the neighborhood of a micron. Uh, which is close to the visible light, you know, what we see and what we call light, it's, it's visible range, and that's in the one micron range. Millimeter waves are in the millimeter wave range, so a thousand times bigger wavelength. But in any other way, they're just electromagnetic waves. And the millimeter waves present us with a very unique opportunity to do things in a very interesting way. Let me use a few analogies. You know, everybody is probably familiar with lasers and fiber optics. You know, most Zoom calls and real-time communications in the world today happen because we humans invented fiber optics. We can transfer lasers over very long distances in a fiber, and that allows us to communicate. So now we're going to scale things up. Instead of a micron wavelength, we're going to use a millimeter wavelength. And instead of a fiber optic, we're going to use a waveguide. A waveguide is a cylindrical pipe that looks just like oil and gas pipe. And that's going to be the conduit for these waves. We're going to insert the waves in the hole and we're going to burn the rock. We're going to evaporate the rock with one megawatt of power. Those vapors get carried away by gas gas that we inject. So so why are we doing all of these? I mean, it's just to keep things simple in the hole. The, The biggest challenge with drilling deeper is that it's a very harsh environment. It's hot, there's high pressure, it's very hard rock. So we find a way, or the Plasma Science Fusion Center at MIT found a way to transfer a lot of energy over a very simple system 
that allows to keep the in-hole complexity to a minimum and basically get away with drilling and vaporizing these rocks in very, very deep holes. So, so that's the core idea behind millimeter wave drilling. But in many ways, it is like a laser transferring over a fiber optic, except that in this case, it's a millimeter wave transferring over a waveguide. And how proven is this technology? I know it's uh, you're working on it now, but uh, how far have you gotten? So I, I can say that the physics are well understood and proven in the lab at MIT. I think that's one of the primary roles that MIT had in the early stages of the technology. What does that mean? It means they've taken many, many rock types and they've experimented with those rocks with millimeter waves to drill holes through them. We understand the amount of energy that's required. We understand what the process looks like. We understand what that process, how that process scales as we go deeper. It, as a company, we've taken that out of the MIT lab and into a national lab. So now we're working with a 10 times more powerful millimeter wave source to make it go deeper, faster, but still in the lab. We're still not drilling in the ground. We will be drilling in the ground by the end of 2022, though, in the lab. So, so we've taken it out of the MIT lab into a national lab. And over the next three years, as we go into 2023 and 24, we start to take it into the field. So we're building systems that are field deployable and will allow us to drill in the ground under real geological and operational conditions. That means going out somewhere, not in a lab, and drilling a hole anywhere from 100 meters to 1,000 meters. You know, if you look at our website, we talk about 20 kilometers. That's the end goal. But there's plenty of business that opens up, even at the 100 to 1,000 meters range of holes. So that's where we start. Since speaking to Carlos back in February, Quays Energy announced it's expanded its Series A financing round from $40 million to $52 million. Their plan is to use this additional investment to expand their technology development roadmap and form strategic partnerships to further scale their business. Next, I'm taking you into the future, the future of lithium extraction. In May, I spoke to Zachary Sadow, CEO and co-founder of KMX Technologies. Lithium has become a very popular topic as it relates to the energy transition lately. And I really enjoyed talking to Zachary because the efficient extraction of lithium is gonna become more and more important as the decades go on. In this part of the episode, Zach explains to us how the technology works and how it differs from the traditional process of extracting lithium. It's a really exciting technology, and we've got an extraordinary uh, team. Uh, our technical team is, is, is really just amazing. If you think about traditional water treatment, let's say reverse osmosis, you have a hydrophilic membrane. Uh, water can pass through it, and as water passes through it uh, over and over again, particles are captured. And that's the treatment process. Now, up to a certain point, that'll work. But at some point there, uh, the concentration levels become too high, TDS becomes too high, and only so much um, uh, of the uh, can be treated. We we take the opposite approach. We use a hydrophobic membrane. Nothing can pass through it. Vapor is really um, what we're looking to uh, harness here. Uh, the hydrophobic membranes are are put into straws, like a straw form. And there's lots of these straws within the, the membrane um, uh, bundle. Water is heated up to about 60, 70 degrees Celsius and runs up and down these hydrophobic straws. We apply a vacuum to the outside of the bundle of straws. And then as water is heated up, the water turns to vapor and the vacuum pulls the vapor 
to the outside, letting the vapor pass through the hydrophobic membrane and leaving whatever particles are in there, whatever salts, lithium, critical minerals are in there on the other side. And then water returns to its, uh, uh, vapor returns to its water form, and you have pure separation. That's what we do. Very powerful technology, and it's um, fundamentally uh, very different than conventional treatment. Uh, we don't compete with reverse osmosis. Reverse osmosis and, and conventional treatments are, um, are, are, are a complementary technology to us. It's really a pretreatment for us. So it's, 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 uh, it opens up an exciting, a number of exciting markets for us to do very high-end water treatment or brine concentration, critical mineral concentration, lithium concentration, many other things as well. So a very, very powerful cross-cutting technology with uh, not a lot of competition. So tell me how that this process can accelerate the timeline to get to the refinery-grade lithium uh, to generate it into batteries. Because I know with the evaporation pools, that process can take up to two years for that concentration process. So with the implementation of your technology, how much can you accelerate that overall process? The right now, there's a couple different aspects of of how utilizing next generation technologies not only boost project economics, but also um, allows project developers to move faster. Uh, with DLE, you are skipping the two year period where uh, where the evaporation ponds really need to go to work. For us, a lot of the what we're competing against is the evaporator crystallizers. More of a um, uh, it's more of a cost. Uh, CapEx, OpEx, as I mentioned, um, we operate under about 60, 70 degrees Celsius, while evaporator crystallizers have to bring the water to a boiling point. So a lot higher, a lot higher energy costs, energy usage, higher carbon, obviously. Currently, what they do in, in, in many operations um, in South America and elsewhere is uh, transport the um, lithium chloride in its natural state to uh, these evaporator crystallizer uh, large plants. Because remember, these are two different pieces of equipment here, industrial pieces of equipment. So it's a two-step process. So there's a transport aspect of it. What we will look to do is to build our small-scale, smaller-scale systems on location. So you're obviously cutting down on the transportation as well. Uh, there's a cost associated with that. A lot of project developers also care a lot about the, um, the carbon intensity of the transport as well, um, obviously because a lot of the end users are looking at the carbon intensity of projects, um, not only the mining companies, the, the automotive off-takers, and of course, as, as, as you know, increasingly, the uh, fund managers as well. So um, bringing the commodity to market sooner is, um, uh, there, there, there's, there's a number of different steps in what that entails, from utilizing DLE upfront to uh, reducing transportation costs and um, harnessing a one-step process versus a two-step process. More importantly for us relative to evaporator crystallizers, though, is, is really the, the project economics and uh, maximum water recovery. And what's the quality of the water that comes out of this process? For us, you know, it's really whatever it is um, that the project developer uh, wants to bring it to. You know, we're able to bring uh, water to drinking quality water standards. And then even better than that would be distilled quality water. And in some circumstances, you know, we could take it all the way to, say, a pharmaceutical grade standard, which we would not want to do. 
but we have the ability to work with the project developer and the local stakeholders and the regulatory framework to bring that treated water to whatever standard uh, meets their interests. And that's a, very, that's a very powerful thing to be able to offer. Since we last spoke to Zach, KMX Technologies has raised over $1 million and licensed its technology to Tetra Technologies for exclusive use in the oil and gas industry for the purpose of recycling produced water for beneficial purposes. Back in June, I attended Wood McKenzie's Solar Energy and Storage Summit in San Diego. This was the first time back at an in-person conference for a lot of people, and you could definitely feel the excitement in the air. It was also my first time recording at a live event. It was a great experience being at the live event, and it was perfect timing coming off a significant announcement as it related to the solar industry from the Biden administration. Here are some of the highlights from across the three days. All right, we're just uh, we're just coming out of the first panel discussion of day one, and I'm joined by Chris Seipel, who's vice chairman of our energy transition practice and power renewables here at Woodmac. Chris, how are you? Uh, good morning. I'm doing great. Yeah. First time for me back in person at a conference, so this is super exciting since COVID started. Yeah, exactly. How does it feel? I mean, the the energy is is pronounced here, but what's what are your thoughts? You know, it's just like you learn so much more or so much more connected to people when you're back in person like this. And so we had a banquet or a, a welcoming meeting with everybody last evening. And just like the amount I learned about like what's going on in the industry, you just can't get the same thing when you're talking over a Zoom call. So it's been really, really great. So the first, uh, the first discussion, uh, very interesting on regulatory affairs right now as it relates to solar. Uh, interesting times right now, given Biden's announcements and, and the DOC investigation. What, what are your takeaways from, from that discussion this morning? The solar business has always been a heavily driven policy business. And so policy is super important to its future. And to have this conference just happened to coincide with the day after an announcement from the Biden administration about how they're dealing with this tariff issue was great timing for us. And, you know, the things that I took away from this was that there's clearly a, a really strong commitment from the Biden administration to eliminate some of the barriers that exist to the development of solar. Um, in particular, this tariff issue that has put a pall of uncertainty across the entire industry. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of commitment as well to address a lot of other issues like developing a more sound industrial policy um, in the United States, bringing back domestic manufacturing capability uh, to U.S. shores for the solar business. So a, a lot of positive there, but, but still this kind of like, you know, unanswered question of is this going to be subject to court challenge? Um, do we really have certainty around this? Um, while there's commitment from the Biden administration, a lot of what has been proposed will require legislative follow-up. Um, not clear that that bilateral, you know, bicameral support exists from both parties to be able to get a bill passed um, that address some of these issues. So it was it was a big step forward, but it hasn't kind of solved all the issues. Well, I'm looking forward to the rest of the conference uh, to tackle a number of these issues because you're right. There's a lot of moving pieces right now. At least some of them are starting to come come into place. What, what are you looking forward to most uh, for the remainder of the conference? Um, you know, the thing that like really excites me about the conference is that in the industry in general is that the power business has been around for, you know, a very long time, hundreds of years. And it had this very long period where there's not been necessarily a lot of technological innovation in the industry because it's been driven by regulated utilities for the most part. And really what I've 
I'm most excited about and, and what has been exciting about you know, the past 10 years, say, is the amount of all of the innovation and new ideas that are being brought to solar and to wind and to storage around how to reduce costs, um, new technologies to be able to get them integrated into the grid. And so you know, I'm particularly excited to hear about some of the people speak about the innovation that they're seeing. Um, yesterday, we all went to visit a microgrid tour. It's actually the first microgrid that I've ever seen in person. And, uh, and it, it also happens to be the first microgrid that has long duration storage, um, commercial scale, long duration storage. And uh, you know, it's not the long, long duration that we need. Um, that's a term that needs some definition. Um, but this is, this is storage that can operate continuously at its full output level for I think like eight to 10 hours. Um, and so that, that's, like, that's an example of like the type of innovation you know, that we're seeing and that's needed. And I'm, I'm just really excited to kind of hear what companies have to talk about in that area. Yeah, I am too. I mean, if one thing that I've taken from hosting this podcast is that it's all about the progress. Uh, you know, it's, you're not going to get to the, the goal line day one, but it's all that innovation that lengthens the storage, all things like that, the technologies that get developed. And it's interesting to see how far they've come just even over the past two years. Yeah. And you heard from the panel today, the off, you know, the, the solar energy office at the DOE, um, Garrett Nielsen speaking about all the different areas of innovation that they're looking for. And it's it's pretty amazing, you know the 90% cost reduction that solar has gone through over the past 20 years. Even though we have cost escalation happening, Zhao Jing, who presented earlier, showed the slides that show, well, natural gas prices have actually increased a lot more than solar's increased, right? And so even though solar's facing increasing cost, it's still very competitive now with conventional generation technologies. And on the panel, we're talking about, and over the next couple of days, all the area for additional cost reduction to come into it, like making it even more competitive. Um, so it's, re it's really kind of, an, you know, it's not something that I thought that I would see in this industry 20 years ago. What do you think about Biden's announcement on the Defense Production Act uh, as it relates to solar? Yeah, well, as you heard in the panel today, I think there's just a lot of details that have to be worked out to see what real impact that has. M most importantly, how does this get funded by Congress? Um, and is that support there to deliver that? But I think, you know, now that this is not just about jobs and bringing back jobs to the United States around the solar industry. This is also, you know, solar has also become a national security issue. Um, and so this combination of national security issues, uh, along with bringing back domestic manufacturing capabilities and the jobs that it provides, um, you would think would provide an avenue to get strong political support to get something, you know, done around this um, from both parties. So hopefully that's what we see. But the you know we'll see what comes over the next well a lot months. of activity yeah i mean it's great like you said the timing was really nice with the announcements coming through before this conference and having everybody talk about it give their thoughts and views on on what the impact's going to be and what it needs to take yeah that was big headwind to the industry and i think everybody here is very happy and optimistic about you know having that announcement one of the hot topics people are talking about today in regards to the energy transition is hydrogen uh, and its potential replacement for natural gas in various areas. Uh, I'm going to be joined here shortly by Bridget Van Dorsten, hydrogen analyst at Wood Mackenzie, to get her insights and thoughts on what she sees as the future of hydrogen, given the complexities that surround it. So very interested in this discussion. All right. Well, we're here with Bridget Van Dorsten, uh, hydrogen analyst at Wood Mackenzie. Uh, Bridget, thanks for joining us. 
Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, uh, you know, I've asked everybody what uh, what it's like to be back in person. I, mean, I think it's the answer's been pretty much the same. How's your How's your initial thoughts on how the conference is going? I think it's going quite well. Uh, what, yeah, one of my favorite things is people are 3D now, not 2D. I can see how tall people are. Um, <laughs> and then actually getting to, to network with people in, in person, it's actually way faster than emailing somebody, setting something up with their secretary. You know, here you're just getting their business card, and it's it's quick and easy. I feel like I'm getting a week's worth of work done in a day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so what have you found most interesting? Like, What's maybe one of your uh, key takeaways that you've heard from the seminar so far? That policy is extremely important, not only for solar, but but for, for hydrogen as well. Um, and being a hydrogen research analyst, uh, I don't know as much on solar, but uh, it's it's clear that policy and incentives, and e- even though solar is 10, 15 years down the road from where hydrogen could be, it's, it's still experiencing uh, the, the same uh, roadblocks that I would imagine uh, it would in that hydrogen scene today. So hydrogen, uh, that, that's been a topic uh, for you know the past year. Uh, that's been on everybody's minds, particularly in the financial community, on it, and it's it's really a a complicated um, complicated area. Uh, you know, green, blue, gray, hydrogen, brown, um, and you kind of really gave a really good overview of hydrogen. So, what what would you like, kind of, as a takeaway, as as a little bit of an overview on hydrogen and what the future has for it? Sure. Yeah, I, I think I think like you said, it's 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 complex. It's very involved. And there are a lot of different facets, not only to the production of hydrogen with the different colors, but also the transportation portion of it, um, in addition to the the end use case. So it has the opportunity to play a role in so many different sectors um, that I think the the main focus that I think people should be focusing on is when we're talking about hydrogen production, uh, low carbon hydrogen production is important because we're trying to decarbonize. Hydrogen is an energy intensive process. So it would really be a waste if we used energy to produce hydrogen that was actually more energy efficient to just use in the first place, especially if the hydrogen that we would produce is uh, polluting anyway. Um, but but I guess the point is it's it's we need to prioritize. There are so many things that need to be de- decarbonized. For, for example, electric vehicles, uh, they're great. We should just we should just be okay with them. Uh, fuel cell vehicles can they can just sit in the background. Hydrogen has the opportunity to decarbonize where electricity can't, and we should focus on those end use sectors and we should focus on prioritizing that not only in policy but in our investments. Um, it's 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 where the profit is. I mean, industry is huge, right? Refineries already have hydrogen that they need. Uh, ammonia production, we're always going to need food. We need to be able to decarbonize the ammonia sector for fertilizer to, to grow our food um, in a green way. And I think these, these uh, large sectors like refining, ammonia, methanol to produce plastics, methanol, um, and then also power, power generation just for your, for your home. I think those are the, the main focuses that, that we should absolutely be prioritizing. Throughout the many episodes of the year, we traveled through land, sea, and air and got a glimpse of what companies across those areas are working on to help us get closer to meeting our net zero goals. The aviation industry is one we explored at depth on the show. From different types of sustainable fuel to hydrogen-powered engines, it is possible that the future of flight is looking greener each day. One of the many episodes I enjoyed on sustainable aviation this year was my discussion with Ben Murphy, head of sustainability at Boom Supersonic. 
Boom is building a supersonic plane they are calling the Overture, the world's fastest airliner. So supersonic commercial flight is not new. Uh, we had the Concorde a while ago that was decommissioned in 2003, but I know it was fuel inefficient. It was uneconomical. So what's different about Boom? Uh, how did you guys start? Yeah, absolutely. So Boom started uh, on the foundation of uh, making the world a more connected place, making it more accessible and easier to travel. Um, we think that's a really important mission. Uh, when you look at the history of transportation over the last 200 years, um, it used to be that you never left your home village and you know a journey across the ocean was a one-way trip. Since then, we've seen huge advancements in the speed of travel from steamships and rail that get you more quickly uh, across long distances. Um, and then the advent of flight really uh, unlocked what it meant to be able to travel. Uh, the prop planes uh, in the start of the century and then really the jet era in the 50s and 60s made it practical for people to travel long distances across the oceans in a reasonable time. And that fundamentally changed entire economies uh, for the better. And it, it really made the world more connected. It, it allowed for a lot of cultural exchange, uh, socioeconomic advancements, and, and other second order impacts that come with a more connected world. The Concorde was the pinnacle uh, of speed, if you will. Um, it was a technological marvel, uh, although it was a bit ahead of its day. It, it wasn't uh, environmentally or economically sustainable. But a lot has changed since the 60s when the Concorde was developed. Uh, we've seen advancements in uh, jet engine technology. So Overture, our commercial airliner, will fly using modern turbofan engines that are quieter and more fuel efficient. Composite materials have advanced, um, carbon fibers, um, that enable both lighter weight structures as well as uh, more aerodynamically optimized shapes to be produced than, than you can with the Concorde's metallics. Uh, the third is computational methods that allow you to analyze the aerodynamics. And that allows you to do hundreds of iterations uh, overnight, whereas the Concorde would have to build a new wind tunnel model to test each iteration. Um, and then finally, the, uh, the advent of sustainable aviation fuels really enable net zero carbon operations for long haul aviation. So tell us a little bit about the aviation fuel that you're using. Sure. So sustainable aviation fuel has been in development now for 15 or 20 years, but it's really now reaching a, an inflection point where it's very mature. At its core, uh, what sustainable aviation fuel or SAF does is it uh, closes the carbon loop for every atom of, of carbon that's emitted, um, you're pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, you can do this through a number of different mechanisms. The more conventional ones are, are biomass. Um, you know, when a plant grows, it pulls carbon out of the air to grow. You then harvest that plant and convert that into fuel. People are familiar with, with ethanol is probably the best example. SAFs are looking to the future of more sustainable feedstocks. In order to qualify as a SAF, it has to achieve at least a 50% carbon reduction. And there's a lot of technologies that are uh, enabling true net zero carbon operation. One of my favorite technologies is called power to liquid. This is where you use renewable energy to pull carbon out of the atmosphere, combine that with a hydrogen molecule, uh, and then you're, you're left with a hydrocarbon that is nearly chemical identical to fossil fuels, but has a net zero carbon footprint uh, because you've pulled out as much carbon as what you eventually put back into the atmosphere. Just a few days ago, 
Boom announced a new sustainable and cost-efficient engine for the Overture called Symphony. I'm sensing a theme here. This new propulsion system will supposedly operate at net zero carbon and will meet chapter 14 noise levels. After traveling the world of energy by air, we took to the sea. We focused several episodes on commercial sea travel and its significant impact on the environment. On episode 239, I stepped onto the decks of Maersk, one of the largest global shipping companies in the world, who are looking to alternative ways to power their engines. Jacob Sterling, head of ocean decarbonization and innovation at Maersk, walked me through how the company is sailing towards climate neutrality by 2040 with a new fleet of vessels that run on green methanol. This started with us setting some, some targets some years back. Uh, back in 2018, uh, we decided that we, uh, we wanted to go for, for climate neutrality in 2050. And that actually sparked a lot of uh, work on looking into what fuels could actually help us make that energy transition, which actually then again led to that we earlier this year could announce that we would cut 10 years off our, our own deadline. So we want to decarbonize our entire business by 2040. So yeah, you're right. We're looking at a pretty, pretty steep acceleration uh, ahead of us for our energy transition in Maersk. And you guys are looking at methanol fuel, uh, correct? What, what, what factored into your decision to pursue that technology versus others? Hmm. We, we have looked at many different technologies, many different fuel technologies, but also uh, things like batteries, for example. And, and it's very clear that if you want to have impact in this decade, which we do. I mean, we intend to halve our carbon intensity in this decade for our shipping operations. Then we need to go for, for fuels that can be scaled now and which uh, has a good scaling potential and where some of the key technologies are ready. And if you take a fuel like methanol, uh, it is actually being used for ships today. Uh, there is a small fleet of methanol tankers in the world that has a methanol engine and use part of the cargo to propel the ships. And also we can see that there are mature technologies to produce green methanol. And mark my words, because I said there are mature technologies because there is no scale. Uh, but uh, we felt that if we would take the first step in actually ordering a ship that would run on green methanol, that, then that could also lead to the uh, investments, unlock the investments in actually green fuel, green methanol production. And the thing with methanol is that it's fairly easy to handle compared to some of the other alternatives such as hydrogen or ammonia because it is, it is a liquid at room temperature uh, and it is, uh, it is not toxic to the marine environment. And, and for human beings, it's only really toxic if you, if you drink it. Uh, and that is not something we intend to do on the ships. So we, we should be good on, on, on that account. So uh, the production of the fuel can be done both from, from biosources and from uh, renewable electricity. So also from a feedstock perspective, uh, when we want to scale the production of this fuel, then it's a little bit more flexible than some of the others, which makes us believe that we can scale fast and that we can get to the really significant volumes. And so a little bit further on choosing that fuel versus, say, hydrogen. Yes. Uh, we've talked a lot on this podcast on hydrogen. So what were some of the other factors that came into the decision as you, as you looked at it compared specifically to that? So, so hydrogen is a, is a great feedstock for methanol, first and foremost. Uh, so that's how it, it, it fits into that equation. We also looked at hydrogen. Uh, and the problem with hydrogen from a shipping perspective is that while it is, is quite light, it, it takes up a lot of space. On a big cargo ship, you want to use the space to carry containers in our, uh, in our case. So if you had really big hydrogen tanks, uh, then 
you would be able to carry less cargo and that would be a real issue. Uh, it's also very difficult to, to handle ammonia overall, but it's mostly the space issue that, that is a problem. Hydrogen uh, or green hydrogen is made from renewable electricity through electrolysis. Uh, we use that as a feedstock to produce uh, methanol by adding a, a CO2 molecule, essentially. You can also add a nitrogen molecule, then you get to ammonia, which we also think has a, has a future uh, as a shipping fuel, but it's just not ready yet. But hydrogen is a fantastic feedstock, and so we do need a lot of scale in, uh, in electrolyzers and electrolyzer capacity in the world to enable that we can also make green methanol. Several reports released throughout the year highlighted just how far away we are in meeting the goals we've set to reduce emissions globally. Ahead of COP27, the UN released its State of the Global Climate Report, which indicated that current efforts being made by the world are not enough to restrict us to one and a half degrees of global heating. In episode 241, I was joined by Rick Sainz, Managing Director at Pollination, a climate change advisory and investment firm. It was interesting to get his insight on what needs to be changed on a global policy level to get us back on track and ensure governments are sticking to the promises they make. We're talking about transforming systems that have been in place for a long time across every aspect of, of the economy. You know, our economy, the global economy has, has been built on fossil fuels and exploitation of natural resources. Those are the two things that are the hallmark of how we've built the economy. And there's been a lot of progress, increased standards of living, all of the things that, that the global society has benefited from over the last century have been fueled literally by fossil fuels and exploitation of resources. But the problem is the world has finite resources and there are integrated natural ecosystems that deliver essential services to the well-being of our planet. And we realize that the economy does not sit outside of the, the nature. The economy is, is within nature and subject to and dependent upon a thriving uh, ecosystems and a stable and healthy climate. And so, you know, it's just basic classic externality challenge uh, that economics 101 kind of had it missed it. Like you can't just just treat something as an externality when, you know, basically paying for the for the theory of economic externalities that that doesn't actually really work when you have a, a system that is, uh, you know, a one system and that's our planet. So we have to re reinvent that. And it's not just, you know, one thing that is causing delay in sort of scaling the solutions. It's a whole combination of things. Those solutions have to be built. They have to be engineered. Then they have to be scaled. And the good news is that the cost curves for most of the, you know, main type of solutions are, are really down. And we're reaching parity with the alternatives, the older technologies, the fossil fuel technologies. And in many cases, in many places around the world, the rational economic choice is to go distributed solar microgrids uh, with some storage. We need to do more work on scalable storage for, for renewables so that you can manage the intermittency issues associated with that, of course. And then we have the hard debate sectors and industrial activities that are going to you know, rely on technologies that can produce the energy output through things like hydrogen. But you know, how, you, how you generate that hydrogen is a big question, and that's a very energy-intensive process that requires you know, large-scale supply of clean energy for the hydrogen economy to really take off. But I think a lot of those opportunities, we're moving from kind of theory into pilot and bench scale and you know, early-stage commercial 
production facilities and we're on that track we're on that scale scale track so what we need to do is accelerate the pace of that change because it's a normal trend that's already happening and it's going to happen anyway but if we don't get to it in a much more rapid fashion then we're going to we're going to be misaligned with the inertia that we're building in the climate system with all the emissions that we're continuing to pump into the atmosphere so what we need to figure out how to do is take a 30-year cycle and condense it into 10 years. That's really what we're tra- are the challenge is. And so then that begs the question, all right, governments, what is your role? How can you create the conditions necessary to facilitate rapid deployment of these technologies? And the, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act that was just passed in the U.S. is a really good example of, of one way to try to do that. It's an incentive-based program as opposed to a carbon pricing program, and they both have virtues to them. So there's a few things right now that are, that are called for under the Paris Agreement, actually, that, that you know, the governments need to rapidly put in place. One of the areas of the Paris Agreement, you know, as we're talking about COP here, there's an article in the Paris Agreement called Article 6. Article 6 is essentially the mechanism that allows international cooperation in achieving uh, individualized country goals called nationally determined contributions. So the, the acronym is NDC. And these NDCs are self-determined uh, by the countries. But what Article 6 says is, you know, if you, country A, uh, it's cheaper for country A to achieve reductions than country B. Country B can help invest in country A and then export those reductions for country A's achievement of its target. So overall, it's, it's, it's emissions trading. And, you know, overall, the targets collectively are met, but they're met in a more cost-effective way. And the modeling that's been done on this through the International Emissions Trading Association in conjunction with the University of Maryland has looked at this and said, if you have a fully functioning Article 6, including in, uh, integrating land use uh, into that, um, you can double the ambition that, uh, for the same cost. And because, uh, as you pointed out earlier, you know, we are well above where we need to be in terms of what the collective ambition will point to on the emission increase. So if we're at 2.5 degrees and we're trying to get to 1.5, we've got a long way to go. There's a gap, right? We need to drive greater ambition. So the tools like Article 6 in the Paris Agreement are essential for us getting, you know, closer and having a shot at achieving 1.5, and we need to go all in on it and fully operationalize it. What what governments need to do is do their part in being ready on the ground to facilitate and implement Article 6. There are rules that were agreed in Glasgow last year as to what is the process that a country needs to put in place domestically to be a participant in these markets, and that requires you know, establishing uh, certain procedures and designating certain authorities and having uh, clarity uh, on, on their ability to track, trace, record, and ultimately participate and authorize the activities in the country that are going to be part of that mechanism. We ended out the year strong with Wood McKenzie's Grid Edge Innovation Summit in Phoenix, Arizona. It was great to bring this podcast on the road again and surround ourselves with great minds looking to innovate the grid. The last three episodes of the podcast were all recaps of the summit, so I'm not going to get into much detail there. But I want to highlight a moment you might have missed, but will stay with me forever. The moment Amy Bailey of National Grid Partners said this. I love the interchange. I listen to it all the time.
Great. Can you say that a little bit louder? <laughs> Love the interchange. <laughs> Well, 2022 was a very exciting, eventful, and educational year across the board. One of the challenges that we have on the podcast is really keeping our eyes on the up-and-coming new technology and strategies that are going to help further the energy transition. I'm learning along with you guys, and I hope to have many more episodes going forward where we can educate everybody on the complexities surrounding all the pieces that need to come together as we further the energy transition. I wish everybody uh, happy holidays and a great new year, and I look forward to you in 2023.